All right, good morning again. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open it up to the book of James. The book of James, we're going to be in James 1, 19 through 27. And if you don't have a Bible, we've got some black Bibles under the chairs kind of spread around. You can grab one of those. We'll be on page 1011 in the black Bibles, page 1011, James chapter 1. I want to thank Stephen for preaching for us last week. He did a great job. Uh, We're continuing our series, Faith Works, through the book of James. I've got a little hum or echo or something in my ear. I don't know if that's, it feels like there's a live mic behind me. Um, But we're in the book of James, and the topic is faith works. The kind of, the idea of the book of James is that faith looks like something. Faith is not just an abstract idea, but it's a real, genuine trust in a generous, sovereign God. So that doesn't mean we're going to be perfect, it doesn't mean we're going to do everything right, but it does mean that there's going to be action, that God's grace is going to be moving through us and things are going to be happening in our life as we struggle to trust and to follow him. This week we're calling it Move. James is going to kind of push us and challenge us to move. Um, Sometimes we're not moving at all, we're just spiritually paralyzed. Sometimes we're moving, but we're moving in the opposite direction, right? And God says, no, you need to move this way. You need to go this way and we need to turn around. It's called repentance, to turn and to trust in God. So this week we're looking at the idea of moving. We're going to see how God's grace moves us in the direction he wants us to go. So verses 19 through 27, I want to uh, back up one verse to catch a little of the context of, of last week's passage. So back up to verse 18. So James 1, 18, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So that's God's grace to us in the gospel. By God's will, his gracious pleasure towards us, we're we're given new birth. So now verse 19. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he's religious, and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Let me pray and ask God to to meet us here and to help us with this. God, we we ask for your help. We pray for you to join us. uh, As you've told us already in James When we lack wisdom, we should ask, and you're generous, and you love to give good gifts to your children. So we ask for your wisdom. We ask for your spirit to meet us here. Help us to understand. Help us to hear who you are and to respond to it rightly. God, we thank you that you are kind to us, and we uh, move forward now trusting that you're with us and that you will help us, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, one of the most frustrating uh, situations you can be in is, is when you can't move, right? Have y'all ever been in some kind of situation where you want to move, but you can't move? Uh, perhaps you're in traffic and you can't move, right? And you just, you're stuck and you're starting to feel road rage because you can't go where you want to go, right? 
Um, sometimes when I'm in a crowd, just a crowd of people, I kind of get a little freaked out. It's a little bit, I guess, claustrophobia. I don't know what it is. I used to play football, and I just kind of fantasize about putting on a helmet and just running through the crowd as fast as I can, right? Um, I just get frustrated when I feel like I can't move. There's just this thing inside me that gets really worked up. And one of the places that I really feel a lot of frustration is in uh, dreams when I need to run or I need to escape or I need to go do something or help someone or whatever it is. I need to move and I can't move. Have you all ever had that experience in a dream? Um, I, I think what it is is I've researched, I've done some dream research here. As I've researched it, there's this physical thing that takes place called dream uh, paralysis or sleep paralysis. Um, so your body literally paralyzes you so that you don't kill yourself or hurt someone while you're dreaming, right? So it's this kind of chemical thing your body does. Your body's like, okay, you're asleep, so you need to not move. And so it's this kind of paralysis that comes over your body while you're dreaming. And so when you're sleepwalking, that, that's broken down, right? Or when you're sleep talking, that paralysis is broken down and you're actually acting out. And that can be dangerous. When I was a teenager, I used to sleepwalk and um, my brothers and sisters or parents would have to kind of move me gently back in to bed and put me back down because I'd be up and around, moving around, not making any sense. So I don't, I don't do that anymore. Now I'm more frustrated with not being able to move. Uh, one time I was with my wife at our, her mom's house. This was many years ago. We were newlyweds and we were sleeping together in a twin bed. So it's kind of cramped, you know, and we're both kind of tall people, so not a lot of room. And I was kind of laying against the window that this twin bed was by to be her protector, right? So I'm kind of just propped up against this window because we'd been talking about how the window always made her nervous with that bed because from that bed, you can see the porch light and you can kind of see out to whoever might be on the front porch and that would make her feel insecure like, you know, they could just come in through the window or they could see her or whatever. So that had been the last thing we talked about before I went to sleep. So as you can imagine, that kind of came into my dreams a little bit. So I'm laying with my body up against the window, protecting her, kind of wrapped around her like this. And you can see out the blinds and see the front porch. And so in my dreams, I'm seeing out the blinds. And my best friend, who doesn't even live in the city, is sneaking up to the window to try to scare us, right? I mean, it's just a game. He's not a bad guy. But he was going to sneak up and like bang on the window and scare us while we were sleeping in the bed. And in my dream, I could see him before he could see us, Right? You know how sometimes, depending on the light, you can see out the window, but they can't see in. So I can see him, and he can't really see us. So I'm peering out the window, and I'm thinking, I'm going to scare him before he scares us, right? So I'm going to pretend I'm asleep, and then I'm going to jump out and bang on the window and say, boo, and just scare him to death. So I've got this whole plan worked out, and uh, I decide to go ahead and, and take action. The, the problem is I've got the sleep paralysis, right? So instead of jumping and banging on the window and saying, boo, I, I do something kind of like this. I go, and kind of like just my arm flops against the window. And my wife, of course, is scared to death. She wakes up. She's like, what is happening? And then I have to explain the whole dream that I just explained to you. Of course, it made a lot of sense to me at the time, but she thought it was hilarious. And she was just laughing hysterical, uh, hysterically. After, I mean, she was scared at first, but after that, she was laughing hysterically. It's 2 o'clock in the morning. She goes, wakes up her mom to tell her the story. And now her mom's <laughs> laughing hysterically. And we're having a big party because of my dream paralysis, right? Because I can't move. Um, so I share that. That's kind of the funny side of it. But a lot of times it's frustrating. A lot of times it's enraging. A lot of times it makes you angry when you can't move. You can't accomplish what you want. And so sometimes in our anger, we decide to take matters into our own hands. We decide 
to move, even when it might not be in the right direction. Sometimes we're so frustrated with our lack of movement that we want to move somewhere. We want to make something happen, and that's what we see in cases of what we sometimes call road rage or just losing your temper in whatever situation in life where you feel trapped and you know this is wrong and you know this is not what's supposed to be happening, so you're just going to force it and you're just going to make something happen. So James is going to address that in the text today. He's going to talk about when we're moving the wrong direction, how we need to turn and move the right direction. He's also going to talk about times in our life when we're just not moving at all, right? So some of us deal more with anger, and we just get frustrated, and we want to take matters into our own hands, and we want to just make something happen. Some of us struggle more with despair. We're more depressed-type personality, and we're just like, I just don't want to get out of bed. I'm not going to do anything. And James is going to challenge both sides, and he's going to say, you need to move. Angry people, you need to move in the right direction. Despairing, depressed people, you need to move. And you need to follow what God has called us to do. So the, the first thing that he hits on here with our spiritual paralysis is that grace, God's grace to us through Jesus, moves us from anger to listening. From anger to listening. I wanted to um, call this first point, shut your face. Uh, but it didn't like parallel with the rest of the sermon, so I didn't use that. But you might just kind of have that in the back of your mind that James is lovingly saying to you, shut your face, Okay. So that's James' grace to you. I'll I'll read what he says. He says, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. So he sets up a contrast here, right? You might be angry because things aren't the way they're supposed to be. I mean, we, just, we live in a world that is not the way things are supposed to be. So the question is, what are you going to do with that? If you're a high justice person, if you're a, a movement person, if you're a high energy person, you're going to move, likely, in anger to fix things. And James says, slow down. Or, as I said before, shut your face, right? Stop talking. Listen. Don't believe that your anger can accomplish the righteousness of God. Now, this is a tricky line to walk for us because both Paul in the book of Ephesians and James here seems to leave the door open that it is possible to have a righteous anger. And I think most of us would believe that at some abstract level, it's possible to have a holy indignation about evil in the world. And then that's right and appropriate. And I think I would agree with that. They're just things that are evil and they're wrong and we should be angry about it. So I have to say that as, as kind of a laid-back person, I want to embrace my high-justice friends in the room and say, hey, there's a, there's a point at which you're right. We should be angry, right? So like a person like me, when I see some injustice and I just kind of be like, yeah, whatever, that's kind of wrong. I mean, I need to react. I need to react to that. But what James is saying is just know that 90% of the time, your angry instinct is not going to achieve God's justice and God's righteousness. You need to get that anger under control. It shouldn't be your automatic assumption, I see evil, I'm angry, I'm going to move and fix it. Anger is an energy that pushes us towards doing righteous and just things, but just know we're sinners, so our anger is never pure like God's anger. God is angry at sin. God doesn't like injustice. God hates wickedness. He is at war with it, but we're a part of that problem in the world of injustice and wickedness. 
we are also wicked. Just because you're not as wicked as that guy doesn't mean you're not wicked, right? Just because you're not as unjust as the next person doesn't mean you don't suffer from a lack of righteousness and justice. And so James says, keep that perspective. Remember, your anger can't achieve the justice of God. This word righteousness, this word justice is a very important word in Christian theology, and we're told that only Jesus can accomplish human justice. So we have this word we call justification. Another way to say it would be righteousnessification, right? It's the same word in the, in the Greek, dikaiosune. So what he's saying here is you can't accomplish justification. You can't accomplish righteousness. You can't accomplish holiness through your anger. You have to take another route. So I'm not saying don't ever get angry. I'm not saying don't ever feel anger. You should feel anger. That's a natural emotion that is appropriate and right and good. What do you do with it? How do you respond with that anger? And I believe what James is saying, he's saying, shut your face, listen, confess your own sin, take that anger to God. I'm not saying don't do anything with it. I'm not saying ignore it. I'm not saying deny it. I'm not saying don't ever get angry again. I'm saying calm down, listen, confess to the Lord that you are also a sinner. Receive, he says, receive with meekness. The very last part of verse 21, receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. That is the gospel, the good news of Jesus. So the problem with the world is not just the bad people out there. The problem with the world is us also. So we need the same solution that the bad people over there need. We all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We all need forgiveness. We all need righteousnessification or justification, however you want to say that word in English. And our anger can't achieve it. Our anger can't achieve it. Again, that doesn't mean that abstractly there's no place for righteous indignation. Yes, when you see things falling apart, you see people being abused, you see people being hurt, you should be angry, but you need to first take that to God. We have a great uh, example of this, a great pattern for this in the Psalms. Read the Psalms. If you struggle with anger problems, I'd say at both ends of the emotional spectrum. If you struggle with depression and despair not doing anything, or if you struggle with anger thinking you can achieve it on your own, both sides emotionally take that to the Psalms and see the psalmist living that out. He takes those emotions to God. He says, God, why is this happening? What are you doing? And he works that out in his prayer life with God. And then that energy is then channeled in a proper direction to receive the correction that we need from God. The way James words it here is, Therefore, since you know you can't fix it, therefore, since you know your anger can't accomplish the righteousness of God, then put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word. It's able to save your soul. So you know you can't fix it with your anger. God blessed me this week. You know, I already said I'm, I'm kind of laid back. I'm not really the super high justice person that gets mad at everything that's wrong in the world. I tend to be like more of a peacemaker, more like, yeah, it'll be okay. Let's wait and see. That kind of tends to be my personality. Um, it's been a very busy time of year for me, and I've found um, most minutes of the day this week this kind of rage coming over me, just angry and anxious and frustrated. And so God's blessed me with this experience so I can relate to you as, as I'm learning myself. I have to learn I can't fix it. I can't just add more energy. I can't drink one more energy drink and make it happen. By the strength of my own will, I have to pray. I have to trust God to help me. I can't force it. 
A lot of us guys, you know, at some point when we're teenagers, we start to develop muscles and we think, if I just force it, then it'll work, right? And we end up breaking a lot of stuff. He's saying, don't force it. Don't think your anger can achieve the righteousness of God. As we think about this movement that grace takes us on from anger to actually listening, to receiving the gospel instead of trying to talk ourselves and make it happen in anger, I think a beautiful illustration I've heard from Tim Keller is the way we respond to God's word. Uh, He uses the example of this book and movie, The Stepford Wives. If y'all ever heard of this story before, The Stepford Wives, I'll just kind of give you the lowdown on the story is these guys in this place, I guess in Stepford, uh, they decide that they can do something to their wives to make their wives never disagree with them again and always say, yes, dear, right? So wouldn't that be great in your relationships if you could get your spouse to just agree with everything you say all the time? Yeah, but then that's not a relationship anymore, is it? That's no longer a relationship. That's a robot. I grabbed a picture of 80s robots from the last uh, Muppet movie. That's not a spouse then, right? That's a butler. That's a robot. That's someone that's not really going to ever challenge you. Tim Keller uses that illustration to say that's what we do with God when we as modern Americans come to the Bible and say, well, I like this part, but I don't like this part. And I'm going to listen to this part because it agrees with me already. But this part that disagrees with me, I'm not going to listen to that. I'm only going to listen to the things that I already like. You know what you're doing is you're saying, God, you're going to be a robot butler that serves me. I'm not going to allow you to challenge me. I'm not going to listen. I'm going to achieve things by my own energy, by my own wisdom. And I'm not going to submit to you. And so I would challenge you, are you listening? Are you trying to accomplish the righteousness of God with your own energy, with your own wisdom, with your own anger, with your own righteous indignation? Are you submissive to him? Are you paying attention to what he has to say, and, and I would argue that if you only pick and choose which parts of his word you're going to pay attention to, you're not really listening at all. You're just listening to your voice and the occasional times that God's word agrees with you. We need to be edited and altered and changed and challenged by God's word. We need to listen to what he has to say instead of making a God in our own image. So God's grace moves us from anger, achieving things by our own energy and our own righteous indignation, and moves us to listening, to receiving his grace for us, to receiving what he has to say in our life. The next thing that James challenges us with is that grace moves us from knowledge to action. Uh, There's this idea, uh, especially as a result of the Enlightenment and kind of where we are in the last few hundred years of of, uh, learning and thought, that knowledge is this abstract thing up here that we can learn in books. But the Hebrew mindset tends to be more that knowledge is something that you know intimately and something that you practice. And so James is really going to push us on that note, that we need to move from knowledge as an abstract idea to doing and practicing and obeying what God says. So do you know about God, but you don't actually do what he's told you to do? James is going to challenge you here. In verses 22 through 25, he says it this way, But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, He's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. Joking with some friends the other day that there's a time in a boy's life where he actually begins looking at a mirror and fixing what he sees there, right? 
somewhere around the age of maybe 12, 15, 25, maybe when he gets married. You know, it varies for different boys, but you begin actually paying attention to what you see in the mirror. And for, you know, depending on your relationship too, then you might have a wife that helps you. Sometimes, you know, I'll get food stuck on my face and I'm not really worried about it because I'm eating, right? I want to eat and I don't want to clean my face the whole time. My wife will help me. Hey, there's something there you need to, you know, work on. He's saying if we just listen to the word but we never do anything, we're like that, t- that kid. We're like that eight-year-old kid that walks away with the bed head and toothpaste on his face and whatever else. And he's not really attending to what needs to be attended to. So he looks intently, walks away, forgets what he looks like. And he contrasts that. He says, verse 25, But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer, who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. That's a different kind of relationship with God's word. The religious leaders of Jesus' day had a problem being a lot like us in the South that grew up hearing the Bible and knowing something about Jesus. We can say all the right answers, right? We can know the Sunday school answers to things. We can quote Bible verses, but we're not doing them. We know God's word, but we don't love God. We don't obey him. We don't practice what he's told us. And James is challenging us to be the kind of people that actually do and don't just hear, but practice it. There's this contrast that's been set up. I've heard from a lot of different uh, teachers over the years that you can't have orthodoxy apart from orthopraxy. So orthodoxy is a kind of a catch-all word just for kind of right belief, right? You can't have right belief apart from right practice. In Christianity, it doesn't work. You can try that in other religions, right? You could get a PhD in something and never do what you've learned in your PhD. But it doesn't work in Christianity. It doesn't work in theology. It doesn't work in our relationship with God. You have to to do what you know. If you're not doing what you know, you're walking in the opposite direction from who he is. And I'm not saying that means you're perfect. It doesn't mean we obey perfectly. We do everything he tells us to do the first time, the right way, all the time. What I'm saying is we are stumbling in faith towards this generous, righteous God who we were told earlier in Chapter 1, a couple of weeks ago, if we lack, ask him, and he gives generously. He's a good father. He loves you. He's going to help you. Are you going to fail? Yes. Are you going to get up and keep moving? Yes, because grace moves us from just simple knowledge to action. We begin doing what we've been told. This phrase he uses, the perfect law, the, the law of liberty, we believe for the most part talks about the whole movement of God's word towards us, encompassing the gospel, not just uh, the kind of limited idea of God's commandments and the Ten Commandments, right? Do this, do this, do this. But more broadly, God commands and God also gives grace and fulfills those commands for us through Jesus, right? So God has law. He's told us what to do, and we've all universally failed. And so God comes in with the living word, Jesus, and he meets the requirements of the law for us. He dies a death that we deserve to die, and he lived the perfect obedient life that we should have lived, and he conquered sin and death through the resurrection, and he gives us that righteousness. And so we believe James is talking about that whole package. James comes back to this phrase later on, uses the word royal law, and he's talking about what Jesus summarized the law with love God and love others. So we believe he's talking broadly in this idea of what is God's word all about. It's all about loving God and loving others. And that is only can be done, that can only be accomplished through the gospel, through the good news of Jesus for us. And that changes our mind then about God's commandments. We have a different posture, right? So 
before you know God as a Savior through Jesus, you see his laws as burdensome. And you see him as being someone that wants to spoil all your fun and hamper your independence and your creativity. But once you know God is a forgiving God that is revealed through Jesus on the cross, you begin to actually want to try what he says. You begin to actually see his law as good as it says in Psalm 119. It's freedom and it's beautiful and it's good and it's helpful for us. And so for the Christian, we're relearning that in our life. We're beginning to take stumbling steps towards obedience because we've changed our mind about God. We now think we can trust him. Before, we didn't trust him. We didn't want to obey his law because we didn't think he was good or kind or generous. But now we believe he's good. So we're trying it. We're trying to obey him. Um, Several years ago, I injured my back when I was in high school playing football. And I remember first going to the doctor for treatment. And frankly, I just, I thought the doctor was a jerk, right? I just didn't, I didn't appreciate him. He, he was just kind of wrong factually about some things. I'd injured my back, and so I could only go about this far. Um, but I was, like when I was trying to touch my toes, I couldn't go all the way down. But I was actually a hurdler, and so I was probably the most limber person on our football team, right? I could stretch farther than anyone else on the football team. So I went in to see him. He asked me to touch my toes. I couldn't. Because my back was hurt, he said, well, that's your problem. You can't touch your toes. You need to stretch more. That's your problem. I was like, obviously, this doctor doesn't know what he's talking about. Because I could stretch last week before I hurt my back. Now I can't move. So he gave me a book of physical therapy exercises. And you know what I did with the book? I ignored it, right? I had the knowledge. It was bound in this nice little book, and I didn't use it. I didn't practice it. I didn't turn that knowledge to action because I didn't trust him. I didn't believe he was good. I didn't believe he knew what he was talking about. I didn't believe he had uh, my good in mind. But you know, my back kept hurting. And I finally just decided, all right, I'm going to try this. He might be an idiot, but I'm going to try it anyway. I started trying the physical therapy exercises. Got a picture of me doing some of the exercises here, stretching on the floor, <laughs> doing some crunches and stuff. I was, I'd been working out more at that time. And uh, as I began to do the exercises, I began to become healthy again. It worked, right? Like once I actually practiced the knowledge, once that knowledge moved from being on the shelf to being something I was doing, it became action. It brought me health. It brought me life. Does my back still hurt? Yeah. I mean, we could take the illustration farther. Does that mean we're going to be perfect when we do what we hear in the Bible? No, we're still going to have nagging pain. I'll probably die with lower back pain, but I'm basically functional now. It works a lot better than it did. I can touch my toes now. I can move. I can lift things. And so the idea is that we would begin practicing what God teaches us. Don't just leave it on the shelf. One of my seminary professors said it this way. We spend a lot more time uh, trying to understand the parts of the Bible we don't understand instead of obeying the parts that we understand. So that's my challenge for you right now. I, I know... Uh, If you're like me, sometimes you struggle to read your Bible because you get stuck. There are walls you run into of, I don't understand this, or I don't like this, or God seems kind of mean in this passage, or I don't understand what he's saying here. I don't get this part. And I would say, just set that aside for now and obey the parts you understand. Go back and reread the part you understand that you don't want to obey. Read that part and start obeying it. Start doing it. Move from knowledge to action. Don't worry so much about parts that you're confused by. As you grow in your orthopraxy, you'll grow in your orthodoxy. As you grow in action, you'll actually grow in knowledge. You'll begin understanding things better the more you try them, the more you experience what God 
has asked us to do. The last thing that James challenges us to is that grace moves us uh, from self to others, right? We're not just stuck on self. We begin caring for those outside of ourself. He says it this way in verses 26 and 27. If anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. I like how James gives us both categories here. Uh, In America, we're kind of a divided nation. We have people that lean more liberal and people that lean more conservative. And so liberal people tend to think that religion really looks like caring for the poor. And conservative people tend to think uh, religion is more about personal purity and holiness. What does the Bible say? The Bible says both, right? The Bible says it's, it's both. You can't really pick and choose. You have to care for hurting people and you have to care about personal holiness. That's what it means to love God and to love others. And so we're not really given a choice. Another thing that I think is really interesting here is the word religion. It's an interesting word. Uh, scholars use this term, hapax legomena, which is a, a Greek word that just means this is a word that only appears once. So whenever they find a word in the New Testament, it only appears once in the New Testament, they, they call it a hapax legomena. So this word religion, streskia, isn't that weird that the word religion only appears once in the Bible? Like, isn't this a religious book? Uh, the issue is that it's a specific word for religion that is a much more ritual, formal sort of word. So the most ritual, formal word about religion in the Bible says, this is your ritual. This is your formality. Are you looking for smells and bells in your religion? Are you looking for more paint and costumes and rituals and holidays and special things you can do to mark yourself off? He says, this is the ritual. This is the formal religion. This is the kind that God loves, caring for orphans and widows and keeping yourself holy. Not blending in with the world, but being different, obeying God, living with his morality, and caring and loving those that can't care for themselves. Isn't that awesome? He says that's what ritual looks like for us. A lot of times we want more externals, right? We want more markers that can make us feel better about ourselves. We want more bumper stickers and T-shirts and Christian coffee mugs and pens that tell us we're Christians, we're good, we, we got it together. And he says, don't buy more bumper stickers, don't wear more costumes, care for the people around you. That's going to be your external marker that you're a follower of Jesus. I have a picture here of someone uh, wearing an elaborate uh, painting, face painting, and he's got a ceremony. You can't really see. He's got a ceremonial gold dish, uh, and this is a Hindu man that's walking through uh, a festival. And so I, I don't personally believe that there's anything wrong as believers to practice ceremonies, right? Some churches are more formal, some are less. I don't think James is saying all ceremonies are bad. I don't think James is saying candles and uh, art and music and special practices are bad, what he's saying is this is the defining practice. This is the defining ritual. This is it. This is the one that stands above all others. That's to care for those that can't care for themselves and to keep yourself holy. That's the marker. If you want to be marked, that's the marker. If you want to have a Christian coffee mug, that's fine. That's okay. But this is the important thing. This is the important thing, to love those around you. The word is helpful to understand as well. The word both for orphan and widow are general words. In our language, we think of them as very specific 
orphan meaning someone who's, who's lost their parents, uh, widow meaning someone whose spouse has died. But they're really more general words that just kind of mean uh, orphans just like a child that's on their own. Uh, widow is just a woman or man on their own, right? So it's kind of just talking in general about needy people, hurting people. So, so what do you do to care for the hurting people around you? That's what it looks like to show on the outside that you're a follower of Jesus. And in what areas of your life are you learning more and more to obey God's standards for your life so that you are not uh, any longer um, being spotted? How does he say this? Stained by the world. Are you keeping yourself pure? He used the language earlier that we kind of skipped over at the very beginning, put away filthiness and rampant wickedness. It's this idea of clothing. Paul talks about this in Colossians as well, that there's this daily thing that we go through as Christians of of taking off the old me that depends on my flesh and myself and everything the world tells me is going to bring me joy in life, taking off those clothes and putting on the clothes of Jesus, putting on the clothing of this is who Jesus is. I can trust God. I can do what he says. It's this daily thing we go through to be reflecting who God is in our life. In our church, I think caring for hurting people looks like a lot of different things. There's a lot of people in our church that uh, care for uh, Compassion International or World Vision children, a lot of people involved in things like that, a lot of people involved in local missions like the um, food pantry, and we give as a church towards the food pantry and towards Hope Pregnancy Center. I know a lot of you are involved in a lot of different things, working with hurting kids through the education system. A lot of you, even as soldiers, you know, if you've devoted yourself to helping hurting people in other countries. You, you actually practice this through your job and through your vocation. Some of you are devoted specifically to foster care and to adoption. We'll continue to offer you resources that educate you about that and how you can be involved and support that. We open up our doors to foster care training and orphan, uh, orphanages regularly that do training here for people that want to get involved. So we, we do that kind of thing regularly around here. That's part of what it means to be a Christian. I have a friend that's starting a ministry to care for the elderly. Um, there are just a lot of different things going on where you guys are living this out. I want to challenge you to pray and ask the Lord to give you a vision to see the hurting people around you. Just say, God, show me a step I can take to move in that direction. And then as far as the keeping yourself unstained by the world, God, just show me an area in my life where I've kind of started following the world and then I stopped that. And I need to follow you instead of what the world tells me is right. Pray that the Lord would lead you in these directions. Well, as we wrap up, uh, I'd like to just remind us of Jesus' motion towards us. So as James tells us to move, he says, move. Your faith should move you. God's grace in your life should move you. I want to remind you of what Jesus is like. Again and again in the Gospels, we're given this word picture of Jesus. In the NIV, it says, compassion. Sometimes in the ESV, it says he was moved with pity. And it's a Greek word, splanknizomai, that very literally means his guts are moved. It's like gut-wrenching. The idea is that Jesus just can't help but move towards us in our pain and in our brokenness and in our sin and in our lostness. Again and again, Jesus sees us hurting and he's moved towards us in pity and in compassion. I want to remind you that that's the Savior that we love, a God who has moved towards us in Christ. And because he moves towards us, that's why we should move towards each other in love. 
Let me pray for us, and then we'll respond together in communion. God, we thank you that you moved towards us in Jesus. We thank you for the salvation that we have in him that allows us now to begin to trust you in new ways. I pray for all of us that we would obey what we know, that we would take steps of faith to begin exercising the things that you've taught us. Help us to respond to you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.